Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7. Uh, we've been going through the parables of Jesus, and I know we've been going uh, chronologically through Matthew on Sunday mornings, and then uh, Luke on Sunday evenings. We'll be back in Luke, Lord willing, this evening. Um, but I actually want to go back um, to a passage we, we skipped for, for various reasons. Uh, look at a parable that we should be familiar with, um, but maybe haven't thought much about. Matthew chapter 7, and if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's Word. It's in your pew Bible, pages 855. If you do not have a Bible, we encourage you to take that Bible home with you. Uh, read it. It's yours. We can replace it. I will replace it myself if, if need be. If you would like to get another Bible, we will certainly get you uh, a more personal Bible. With that, starting in verse 24, we'll go to the end of the chapter. The evangelist Matthew writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, the floods came, and winds blew and beat against that rock, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Go, Lord, in prayer. God, thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for allowing us to gather in worship. May you open our hearts that we would receive your word, our mind that we would understand it, our eyes that we would see your glory, our, our ears that we would hear and heed your word, our mouths that we would speak the truth of the gospel, our hands and our feet that we would go in obedience, and, and that we would see your word, and we would be transformed because of the gospel. May we encounter your son anew this morning. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. May you be seated. I feel obligated to get this out of the way, so let's just go ahead and do it. You can help me out. I know we're Baptists and you're not supposed to participate in worship, but here we go, okay? The wise man built his house on the rock. Am I getting this right? The wise man, something built his, I don't know what the building signal is, forgive me, built his house upon the rock, the white, ha the white house, the white, this is why you got to stop watching news, the wise, because there's no wise men there, no matter what party, wise man built his house upon the rock, and the rains came tumbling down, right, forgive me, I've not been in little kid's Sunday school for a while, okay, the rains came down, and the floods went up. Hey, you all get it. You remember the chorus. Yeah, I'm so proud for Baptists. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. The rains came down, and the floods came up, and the house on the rock stood firm. Am I doing this right? It doesn't matter. And then the foolish man, whatever that is, built his house on, is it sand? So the foolish man built his house on the sand. Foolish man <laughs> built his house on the sand, and the rains came tumbling down. The rains came down, floods came up. Rains came down, and the floods came up. Rains came down, just like the spider song, isn't it? And the floods came up, and the house on the sand went smash. There you go. See there? You're awake now. And now you go back to sleep. Well, the, 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 the songs like that, the reason we sing those with kids is because they, they teach Scripture, much like the Zacchaeus song. Right? You, you can't preach on Zacchaeus without... Uh, recognizing that everyone in the back of their head are going to be singing that song, so you might as well just deal with it. And I know whenever we read this passage, all of us in the back of our head are going to go through that song. It is a faithful rendering of the text. 
It's fun and goofy. Kids love it, but it's a faithful rendering of the text. But let me ask you, just looking at that, what is it really about? I mean, I don't know about you, but I have no intention of leaving here today throughout the next week, 10 years, as long as I live, of ever building a house myself. So what good is this text going to do? I mean, make a sandcastle with the kids. My wife drags me back to the beach, but I'm not going to be building any, any houses, right? So what's the point of the text? Yes, we get it. You should build a house on a rock. You shouldn't build it on sand. Okay, everyone go home. Let's beat the Methodists to, to dinner. What is it really about? That's the text, or that's the question that really drives me to this text. What is it really about? Well, I think to, to, to take apart this text, I think we need to compare these two men. We need to see what they have in common, and then we need to see where it is that they differ. Let's start where, where these, what these two men have in common with each other. The first thing we see here is that both of them hear the words of Christ. That is very clear in the text. Verse 24 and verse 26 are in, uh, say the same thing. Everyone then who hears these words of mine is, is, is like the man who builds his house on the rock or the man who builds his house upon the sand, right? So, so we see here both of them, they hear the words of Christ. Now remember we, that a text without a context is the pretext for a proof text. That's on the quiz later. You have to recite that by, by memory. Now the point here is, is this comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So in his conclusion, he's saying, everyone who hears what I've been saying for these three chapters, a lot of red letters here in these three chapters, one is like the man upon the rock. The other is like the man who built upon the sand. Either way, both men are in the audience hearing the word of Christ. Secondly, we see that both build similar houses near each other. I think this is worth pointing out, particularly as 21st century Americans, where we have to justify every mistake that someone does. And here we need to see that the building a house has nothing to do with socioeconomics. They live in the same neighborhood. They have the equal opportunity. Everything's the same. Let's just say they built the same house with the same number of rooms and uh, same chandeliers and everything. I, I, and I'm sure their wife afterwards said, well, I think we can knock out that wall and make the, the kitchen larger. No doubt. Well, so, so they built the same house. They hear the same words. And thirdly, they experience the same storms. The same storms are being experienced here. Now, have you ever survived a tornado? Have you ever just sort of been through, through one of those? It's a scary, scary moment. And uh, no doubt, if you live in this area, you, you've had tornadoes eerily similar, or not similar, but eerily close to you, right? I remember calling a friend of mine when we were in Breckenridge County. Um, the, the tornado, they said, is on Highway 54. A good buddy of mine lived on Highway 54 in, in, in Ohio County. I called him and said, if you're not downstairs already, you'd better be. It's coming, right? Uh, no doubt we've, we've been through, through all that. However, have you seen the images where, where the tornado go, goes through a neighborhood? This house is smashed, to quote the song. The house right next to it seems to be perfectly fine. And you think, well, what's the difference? Well, in that case is you can tell which way the storm went. Well, that's not what's happening here. What you have here is the same storm with, with the same velocity. All of that is hitting both houses. And so they, they experience that same storm. And finally, what we, they have in common is, um, by the looks of everything, these two men were essentially the same. On the outside, they had nice homes with nice furnishings. Both men were well-known in their community. They understood the building process. So it seems to be that they've, they've heard the same things. They even believe some of the same things. They, they've built the same way. Maybe they're both very religious people. I, mean, I, I don't know. But from the outside, they seem very... Very, very similar to, to each other. 
But there was a lot of differences, and, and, and their differences is really what matters to Jesus. So let's look and see, see what makes them different, shall we? The first thing we see here is they both hear, but only one obeys. They both hear, but only one obeys. And I would argue this is really the, the crux of the passage here. What really separates them is obedience. They've sat here at the feet of Jesus for, for three chapters now, starting back chapter 5 with the Beatitudes, going all the way through. Jesus teaching on, on prayer and, and charity and, and everything. And, and they, they hear all of this. One goes home and obeys. The other goes home and I guess just eats. No, nothing has really changed in him. You see, intellectual knowledge, we should, we should state, is it enough for the believer? Unless our theology directs our lives, it is an empty theology. And this unwillingness to obey the message of Christ is truly what leads to him foolishly building his house upon sand. Let me ask you wives, and, and, and especially if you're a mother, thus your husband is, is the father of your children, uh, it seems it gets worse whenever you become a father. In my own experience, but have you, have you ever brought something home that, that needed some assembling required? What does your husband do? He gets all the parts out and he just goes to work. What do you say, ladies? Well, have you read the instructions? What's the answer to that? The answer is no. No, no. And, and, and he can't figure out why it's wobbly and why he's got a lot of pieces left over. Ain't no little duct tape couldn't fix anyways, right? So too, this is the sort of foolish man. He receives instructions for Christ, from Christ, but he seemingly just ignores them. That is truly foolishness, to hear Christ, to fail to heed the words of Christ. The second thing that, that differentiates them is they both build, but only one does so wisely. The issue isn't that they build. We've already established that they're equal there. The difference is how they build. The wise man builds his house upon the rock, the firm foundation of the rock. Now, Luke will add in his parallel of this that he actually dug into the rock. Right? He, he, he poured a lot of sweat into it. The foolish man, on the other hand, has no firm foundation. And one must wonder why. Now, we must admit that the foolish man is adequately called a fool. Who in the right man will build a house upon the sand? Now, the reasoning for uh, these buildings, we, we assume, is rooted in Middle Eastern weather. According to the traditions at the time, uh, the two men probably build their homes during the dry season. And if you look out during the dry season, it's dry. That's why they call it the dry season. That'll be on your test at the end. Now, the rivers would have been drier. The seas would be less deep. So in haste and without care, he hurries up and builds the house, not anticipating what is soon to come during the wet season. But you've got to be thinking... <laughs> What's really going through this guy's mind? Uh, two words come to mind. First is, could he have been naive? I mean, genuinely, just, just naive. I mean, was he so naive to think that here it is in, in the dry season, the waters would never return? I mean, was he, was he, was he that, that, that naive? You know, maybe for us, it's, it's the middle of July. We're in one of those droughts, and he's thinking, well, since it's dry outside today, I guess it's going to be dry forevermore. And then next spring hits, or the next ice storm with, with another ice storm, with another snowstorm, and then a rainstorm comes. Not that that's happened recently, right? 
I mean, there, there is a good chance, right? When you bought your home, you, you, you look for certain things. One of them might have been, in Kentucky, uh, a basement. Why do you want a basement? Well, to store all the stuff you're not decorating with now, of course, of course. But the real reason you need a basement is, is because tornadoes, right? I mean, you get that. We had a basement growing up. I think it was haunted. But whenever a tornado came, we just risked it because it was safer in the basement, Chances are, husbands and wives, you go buy a car, you think of these things, right? But you think of two different things, but you're at least anticipating certain things, right? Uh, mothers, when you go buy a car for your family, what, is, what matters the most? Is it faith? Right? You don't care about the cost. You don't care about the insurance. You, you, don't, you don't care about anything else. Is it safe? Right? So you go and ask your, your, your husband, uh, uh, are they selling tanks? And if not, Hummer will do just fine. Right? Because you, you, if, if you're going to be head-on collision, someone's got to win. And it might as well be you in the kids. Right? That's, that's what you think. Husbands, you likely think of something different. You, you think more of, a, a, does it have the ideal gas mileage? How many nations can I see in one tank of gas? That's what you want to know. Right? And also horsepower. But you really want to know about that, that gas mileage, right? First time we went to go buy a car, you know, everything my wife looked at was the opposite of everything I looked at. And I remember every time she pointed, like, I wonder what the insurance is going to be on that thing. Right? That's all I would say. Right? I wonder if the insurance is going to be on that thing. Oh, not that much more. It's the more part I don't like, right? <laughs> right? I don't like that. But it's safe. Yeah, but there's this other part. So maybe the foolish man is a little naive. Maybe he's sitting there like, well, that'll never happen to me. Yeah, that'll never happen to me. Or maybe he's thinking, you know what? God loves me, has a wonderful plan for my life. I don't need a plan for the future. I don't know what, what he's going. Maybe if he's not naive, maybe he's just lazy. I mean, let's be honest. It, it is easier to build a house on sand than it is on a rock. If you build anything on a rock, it has to be dug, it has to be chiseled and firmly established. Sand doesn't. You don't have to do any of that. And what he finds here is that shortcuts destroys his construction. There's J.R.R. Tolkien wrote in Fellowship of the Ring, shortcuts make long delays. And here's a shortcut that leads to a long delay. So they're not only different in obedience and wisdom, they're, they're, they're different in the matter of survival. Now there is a debate as to what the rock represents. Maybe you're reading through this and, and you're, you're familiar with it. It's never really crossed your mind. That's what, that's what bothered me this week is, is, okay, you and I should build our houses upon the rocks. Good. But what's the rock? I mean, that's sort of an important question. I mean, it sells just to say build your house upon the rock, but, but what is the rock? Otherwise, what are you building on? And what is the building, right? I mean, I mean you've really got to identify what it is, is this rock. Well, let me, let me just give you what all my homework is. I really think it's this. Given the context of the Sermon on the Mount and the broader context of, of, of the Gospel of Matthew, I think it's very clear what Matthew is getting at here. The rock is Christ. The rock is his gospel. And this fits the context of the passage and sums up this, the, the entire Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom of God which if, if, if you've been with me uh, for a number of years, I've shown you how uh, the, the gospel of Matthew is about Jesus as king. And so the kingdom language is, is his main guide to showing us Jesus as king. You can look at every chapter. Uh, we've done that on a number of occasions, so I won't do that here. So the Sermon Mount is, is about kingdom living. And it is the message from the king that those who enter his kingdom, this is what it looks like to live in his kingdom. Thus, we cannot understand the Sermon on the Mount without understanding Christ and his gospel. The kingdom is centered upon Christ and his gospel. Let me see if I can prove it to you. 
In Matthew chapter 5, right, we open up with, with the Beatitudes, right? And we can't look at all of them. This is all just for the purpose survey. The first two are odd. They're all odd, but the first two are really odd. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Really? Now, you wouldn't put that sentence together. Blessed are the poor? Whatever it means to be poor in spirit, but the blessed are the poor? That won't sell in 21st century materialistic America. Have you ever seen a commercial that says something like that? No, not at all. So blessed are the poor in spirit. There's the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they who mourn. Wait, wait, you're happy, you're joyful, you're, you're content, you're at peace. If you, if you mourn, that won't sell in therapy, right? You won't see a Disney movie with that message because it's all about follow your heart and find happiness. You see, so, so how do we understand the Beatitudes? Well, we, again, we, we've looked at Beatitudes before. I think when we first came, we looked at the Beatitudes in some detail. They're centered again on, on the cross. Why? Where is it that we are poor in spirit? Is it not because of our sin when we are standing before Christ in all of his glory? Is it not there that we are poor in spirit? In that humility, with our mourning over our sin, is it not in that context we find comfort in Christ? Is that not the key to the blessed life? It's not grab and gab. It's Christ and his kingdom. Or consider where he goes in chapter 6. Again, we're, we're doing a, a lot of skipping here. In chapter, uh, uh, yeah, let's go back to ch chapter 5 there. Where you, you've heard it said, you shall love your, your neighbor and hate your enemy. I said, you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Here we must talk about what is it that the Bible means by the word love. Well, love doesn't mean infatuation or following after your heart. Love is rooted in the cross. The New Testament is very clear that, that here in his love, not that we loved Christ, but that he loved us first and that he died for us. You've heard me say before, do a word study of the word love in the New Testament. You'll find it's almost always either written in the past tense, loved, for God so loved the world, or it's written in the present tense with a past modifier. So you may say love, but then it will point you back to the cross. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. This is very common the way the New Testament speaks of it. Why? Because it wants us as believers to see that you can't functionally understand what love is, thus live according to the meaning of love without coming first to the cross. Thus when it says, love your enemies, is that not what Christ is doing when he says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. You can't understand any of this without the cross. Can't understand any of it without the gospel. Or chapter 6, we get the issue of forgiveness. This is right after the Lord's Prayer, right? When you pray, pray like this. It's a model prayer for, for disciples. And he says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Again, what is at the central message here? Forgiveness. And notice that a key component of prayer is forgiving those who have wronged you. Maybe you've learned this. Maybe you haven't learned it and need to learn it. It is hard to be angry at someone you are praying for and regularly, regularly praying to forgive them in your prayers. Very hard to be continually angry at them. But what is the context of forgiveness in, 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 in Christianity? It's the gospel. There our forgiveness is procured by the blood of the Lamb. Thus, when we forgive, we forgive knowing that no one has ever sinned against me more than I have sinned against Christ. We looked at that a few weeks ago with the parable of the unjust servant, unforgiving servant. Or we can look later in chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the issue of idolatry, isn't it? 
Now, this will bleed into some of his discussions in chapter 7, as we'll see. But it's very clear he's dealing with, with idolatry. Where is your treasure? Is it here on earth? Or is it more secure than that? And how do you get that sort of security? Is it not rooted in the kingdom? Christ and his gospel? Or look at chapter 7, where it's very clear. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who, who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. What is he talking about there? He's not talking about how to make, how to make it down to, 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 to the gulf. right? He's not giving you directions. To this place or that place, he's telling you on the way to to, to the kingdom is a narrow way. And there's only one way. It's Christ and his gospel. It's the message of the kingdom of God. So you can't understand any of this without the gospel. Or let's look at one more passage. Verse 21, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. This falls right off the heels of the narrow gate passage. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven is the one that that will enter. Here we see Christ as judge. You don't get more explicit than that. So the king becomes a judge here in the Sermon on the Mount. What does he do? He determines those who enter by the narrow gates. The point of this survey is, is to say that, 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 that you can't understand any part of the Sermon on the Mount without appreciating and to understand deeply the message of the gospel. It is the unifying theme of the Sermon on the Mount. It is a unifying theme of the Gospel of Matthew. It is the unifying theme of the Bible itself. What is it that Martin Luther once, once wrote? That the Bible is the cradle wherein Christ is laid. So you can't understand any of it without Christ. And so what we have here then are two men. They hear the same message. They come from similar backgrounds. They build the same house. Yet the response to the gospel is very different. One hears and goes home. The other hears and heeds in leading to, to obedience. So this man builds his house, the man on the rock, on the true gospel, whereby he doesn't just admire Jesus, respect Jesus, Rather, he obeys Jesus. He doesn't go through the motions. He hears, he listens, he understood, he obeys. And because of his faith, his life and his worldview are shaped by the gospel. Every aspect of his life is. He's become unshakable. I do believe, for, at least for the sake of simplicity, the rains, the flood, the wind, all of that. Uh, they certainly represent life's many trials and everything else that may go on. And notice that both men again experience in them. It isn't that, that the man on the sand got the brunt of the tornado, the guy on the rock didn't. It isn't that the guy on the sand was there in the middle of the storm, but the guy on the rock was on vacation. No, they experienced the same storms, the same hardship, the same issues. One survives, the other crumbles. Maybe it was the issue where they lost their spouse, lost their job felt betrayed, had their hearts broken, lost everything they ever owned. But none of that matters to the rock man. Since he's firmly planted in the gospel of repentance and obedience, he knows that God is in control upon his throne. He knows his joy isn't determined by his circumstances or his opportunities or his possessions. He knows that God is still good despite what may happen to him or what may happen around him. God is still in control despite how uncertain and how shaky things may be. He knows that God is still a saving God. He knows that God is still involved. His world might be shaken, but he is firmly rooted on a solid rock. 
I trust you're familiar with the story of the man who wrote it as well of my soul, having lost his entire family. He wrote it while he, he, uh, his family died in, in, in a boat wreck, and they were on their way to London. He was in Chicago. He'd already lost everything in the Chicago fire. Now he lost his family. So on his way to go get his lifeless uh, bodies of, of his family who were dead, he wrote the hymn, When peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot you have taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Why? What he's not saying there is, oh, no big deal. Sometimes, you know, life just turns against you. That's not what he's saying at all. It's not bumper sticker theology Horatio Baffert has here. Rather, I believe it's the third verse, is my sin. Oh, the bliss of this wonderful, glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. That's a rock man. That's a man whose foundation, his faith, his life, his being is built upon Christ. But what about the sane man? He lives in a delusional world contrary to the gospel. He isn't built on Christ He's likely built on himself. When the rains fall, the storms come, the winds blow, he panics and collapses. I've mentioned this before because it is, it is always just in the front of my mind that I can enter into a funeral home and I can tell you, where do these people's hope lie? And it's often found in the person who is deceased. This person was a person of faith, who built their foundation upon the rock. The feelings in that room are different. Sad, yes, bitter, of course, but there is a sweet hope because there is a foundation built that likely had lasted for generations. But you enter that that funeral home where no such foundation is laid, you can feel it the second you walk into it. I bet you've experienced the same thing It could be the same funeral home, but two very different funerals, and you feel like you're in two very different places. Why? Because it has to do with where our foundation is laid. Chances are there are people who are no longer associated with this church or any other church. Why? Because the winds came, the, the, the rain fell, and the storm battered their lives. Their foundation was upon sand. So the moral of the story, I think, is quite obvious. What foundation is your life built on? The gospel of Jesus or sand? If your house is built on the false gospel, great will be your fall. When life throws you a curveball, you will crumble under it. But if your house is built on the rock of the gospel, I am convinced you shall persevere. You'll persevere because you will not give up. Why? Because your foundation is Christ. who You look to him who has suffered and died in your place, who is like us in every way, the writer of Hebrews tells us, yet without sin. Thus we have a sympathetic high priest for us. Isn't this why we sing that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? I dare not trust the sweetest frame 
but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness hides his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace, and every high and stormy gale my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And in case you, you think, maybe I'm off here, can, can we read the rest of this? Because it's easy to overlook the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. The black letters, right? We usually focus on the red letters, but what, what did this, Matthew wrote all of it. It's all equally inspired. Notice that when Jesus finished these sayings, all of them, from the attitudes all the way to, to where's your foundation built in, this is his conclusion. After everything is said, the question is, how will you build your house? Will it be on rock? Will it be on sand? Will you be the wise man or the foolish man? He finished these sayings, and the crowds were what? They were repentant. Is that what your says? They were converted. Is that what your text says? They were joyful. They, 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 they were going to live by faith. You're not even going to get they were angry at Jesus. At least you got, got a clear response. What were they? Astonished. The word there literally means struck out of themselves. They were dumbfounded, bewildered, blown away. This means all they did was analyze the sermon. I tell you what, this guy, this young pup named Jesus, fresh out of cemetery, let me tell you, they're really training him over, ain't they? All they did was analyze. In May 30, 1792, William Carey preached his most famous sermon known as the Deathless Sermon. What a title that is. Here he was, he was at a, a, a local Baptist association in, in, in England, and, and he preached on Matthew 28, explaining that the Great Commission didn't just apply to the apostles, it applies to us, that we must go to the nations. William Carey was a cobbler by trade. He had his map up, up in, in, in his uh, 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 repair shop, and, and there he would pray for the nations, thinking someone must go to the nations. So he preaches the deathless sermon, calling on this, this, this local association to do something about it. You know what happened after the sermon? They had fried chicken and then they had business. They voted on this. They voted on that. And by the next day, they were, they were ready to, 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 to wind everything down. Everyone was ready to go home. After all, many people had hundreds of miles to go by horseback uh, to get home that, that night. So people were ready to go. And, and, and when, when uh, uh, Fuller, his, his first name, uh, one of our pastors is, is a scholar of him, and I, I can't think of his first name. Last name's Fuller. Uh, great, what is it? Andrew Fuller, thank you. Andrew Fuller, um, uh, there was a guy I went to school with named Fuller. I knew that he wasn't it. Um, Andrew Fuller, you know, is ready to close out, you know, and uh, uh, William Carey tugs on, on him and he says, quote, is there nothing again going to be done, sir? Is there nothing again going to be done? Will we simply talk about the nations? Will we simply talk about obedience? Will we simply talk about Christ? Or will we do something about it? And out of that simple plea came the first missionary society that we today take for granted. Right now, there are thousands of Southern Baptist missionaries by the means of the International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board, just among Southern Baptists. William Carey is considered the father of the modern mission movement. It was that little association that took William Carey to India. You can go there 150 years later. You can see his, his, his legacy still there with churches and Bible colleges and schools and ministries. 
All because he didn't simply want us to hear the message. He wanted us to heed the message. He was afraid they were going to simply be moved, but not changed. They would be astonished, but not convicted. Why does that sound like the American church? We've heard more sermons than we can count. We've read more Bible verses than we can remember. We've plastered more bumper stickers in our car than, than is, is, should be tolerated. What difference is it making right now? The problem? Our foundation isn't upon a rock. Maybe this story sounds familiar to you. I stole this from my favorite little Three Little Pigs cartoon. This is the good one. This is when cartoons were good. You know the story, right? Three Little Pigs. First pig built his house out of hay. Big by a wolf comes and says, uh, little piggy, whatever, not by hairs, chinny, chin, chin, blows it down, yada, yada, yada. In some versions, he eats the pig, which is what I like. But in the cartoon version, goes to, to, to his buddy's house, made out of sticks. A little piggy, little piggy, whatever it is. Hairs the chinny, chin, chin. He huffs, he puffs, blows it down. And again, my favorite version, eats the second pig. And, um, but in the cartoon, goes to the third house. What happens in the third house? Made out of bricks. Little piggy, little piggy, let me in. Now my hair's chinny, chin, chin. I'll huff and I'll puff. And 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 he couldn't blow the house down. The end. What's that supposed to be about? What's the moral of the story? I don't know. I have no idea. Maybe it's about proper building technique. Like literally. Like don't build a chicken coop out of sticks, let alone a house, Right? Maybe it is about, about that. Maybe it's about staying away from wolves. That's, that's good advice. Kids should know that. Kids, don't go near wolves. That's good. You should write that down in the back of your Bible. Maybe it's about veganism. You shouldn't eat pork. I don't really know what it, what it is about. But I do know what this parable is about. I do know what Jesus is trying to say here. It's quite simple. Worry less about trying to find something new. Worry less about trying to discover something new. But focus on that which you should never forget. Christ and his gospel. So that when the world huffs and puffs, when the nations rage and they huff and they puff, the fear huffs and puffs, when the flesh huffs and puffs, you can smile. Not by the hairs. Of my chinny chin chin. Let's pray.